Hello and welcome to another episode of the Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Wendy. And I'm Trish. And today we have a listener suggested episode. Love it. Very excited. We love hearing from our listeners, your suggestions, your favorite episodes. We love doing that. These are new to us and we get to research things that we wouldn't normally come up with. If you would have a suggestion for a case that we could cover, please reach out to us. You can do so on our website at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes, all of our episodes, all of the resources we find and read and watch to bring you the episodes. You can also reach out to us through our Facebook page, Criminal Discourse Podcast, Instagram at Criminal Dis Pod. Twitter, Criminal Pod, and uh, YouTube. Twitter, as long as it still exists, I guess. Right. We'll be so, there. So we have to pay for it. <laughs> and then maybe not. Oh, gosh. I hadn't even considered well, that. Well, I think you only have to pay for it now if you want the blue check. Guys, we're never getting the blue check. We're <laughs> not paying not. for that. <laughs> Probably not. <getting> <laughs> no. We don't have any case updates for you today, but we do have a disclaimer. We don't normally do those for criminal discourse. You are adults tuning into a true crime podcast. You kind of know what you're getting in for. But today's case is really emotionally intense. It does deal with topics of domestic violence and sexual violence, but even that is a little bit more intense than what we normally deal with. So just wanted to give you that heads up before we dive into this episode in case those topics are very sensitive for you. We have covered many cases where prosecutors make a so-called deal with the devil giving the accomplice to a crime a lighter charge in exchange for information against a bigger fish. I've covered several of these. They fascinate me. Kimberly Dots was one. The Dreamland Park murders was another one. They always make me angry. Carla Homolka is no, the, the biggest, yeah. baddest one. <laughs> now, in today's case, that tactic backfires, but in a unique and unfortunate way that we actually haven't seen before, I don't think. Even though Mel Ignato admitted to the sexual torture and murder of Brenda Schaefer, he never served a day in prison for it. But his accomplice, Marianne Shore, she turned him in and told the truth, and she served time for her role in Brenda's murder. This is the case of getting away with murder and how Mel Ignato became the most hated man in Louisville. Today's case does take place in Kentucky in the southern United States, and our last trip to Kentucky was in December 2019 way back, episode 24 of season one, when we covered the case of Christian Kit Martin, the military pilot who assaulted a child and then murdered three of his neighbors to cover up the evidence. He was recently sentenced to life without parole for those murders, but he maintains his innocence and is appealing. Ooh. This time, we're heading to Kentucky's largest city, Louisville, Jefferson County. Now, I don't know if any of you out there are from the area, if you pronounce it Louisville or Louisville. It is named after King Louis, so I'm probably going to pronounce it like that. This region of Kentucky borders the state of Indiana and the Ohio River. It's famous for hosting the annual Kentucky Derby at Churchill Downs, that event where everyone wears funny hats. If you're a fan of ghost stories like I am, you're also familiar with Louisville. Louisville's Waverly Hills Sanatorium, the tuberculosis hospital turned haunted history attraction. You'll recognize many of Louisville's famous citizens too, Jennifer Lawrence, Muhammad Ali, Hunter S. Thompson, D.W. Griffith, and Diane Sawyer, among many others. In the summer of 1988, 
in Louisville. 36-year-old Brenda Sue Schaefer began the process of leaving her boyfriend of two years, 50-year-old Melvin Henry Ignato. I say the process because Mel was controlling, sexually abusive, and pressuring Brenda to marry him. It wasn't as easy as saying it's over and walking away. All Mel thinks about is sex and himself. It's like he wants to own me, body and soul, she would tell her best friend. Perhaps sensing Brenda's increasing distance, Mel began complaining to his on-again, off-again girlfriend, 38-year-old Mary Ann Shore, that he wasn't sexually satisfied with Brenda. So he was dating both of them? At the same time. At the same time. Oh, for sure. And you may also notice that he has a healthy 12 to 14 year age advantage on them as well. That's not too terribly abnormal given his age, but this is a pattern. We'll see. He devised a solution for this dissatisfaction he had, and he called it a sex therapy class that he would administer to Brenda with Marianne's help. So in August of 1988, Mel and Marianne dig a four foot deep hole in the woods behind Mary Ann's rented home. This was for Brenda, Mel confirmed to her, but Brenda wouldn't be hurt. Mary Ann says she believed that they were just going to scare her. So this would be part of the sex therapy. If she didn't comply, they would put her in this hole to scare her and then she would comply. Did both women know about each other? (laughs) Clearly, Marianne knew about Brenda. She knew of her. There are instances where the two encountered each other, but it's not clear that Brenda really knew who Marianne was. Marianne definitely knew about Mel and Brenda's relationship, was jealous, wanted Mel all to herself. That we know for sure. How much Brenda knew, mm, that's debatable. In September, Brenda is also reconnecting with an old flame of hers. So she's ending this relationship with Mel, and she starts seeing her ex-boyfriend, Jim Rush. Brenda had struggled with Jim's excessive drinking, and Jim had his complaints too. They loved each other, but it just didn't work out at the time. And now the two were talking and going on dates again, with Jim offering whatever help Brenda may need to break away from Mel Ignato. So he knew about the abuse and the problems that she was having. On Wednesday, September 21, Brenda tells Jim that her breakup with Mel is final, but that she has to return some jewelry that Mel had gifted her, including an engagement ring that weekend. Trish is shaking her head no. Girl, (laughs) mail it, take someone with you. Red flag. It was supposed to be the last time she would ever see Mel. Now, in addition to Jim, several of Brenda's friends, family, and colleagues knew about these plans. On Friday, September 23rd, Brenda confides to her brother Tom's longtime girlfriend, Linda Love, that she thinks Mel followed her home from work that day and that she was, quote, afraid for her life. That same day, Mel dropped off a bag for his sex therapy class at Marianne Shore's home. It contained pre-cut lengths of clothesline rope, neatly taped at the ends, KY jelly, chloroform, a wooden fraternity paddle, and other materials he was planning to use on Brenda's body. On Saturday, the next day, September 24th, Brenda drove to the home Mel shared with his mother to drop off her jewelry. Mel convinces Brenda to get some food at the nearby Gold Star Chili restaurant, and at 4 p.m., she drives them there in her Buick, so he convinces her to extend this visit. Mel tells Brenda he has a friend who wants to see her jewelry, maybe to appraise it or purchase it. 
why not stop there on the way back home? Brenda agrees again. Question. Yeah, yes. Isn't it his jewelry? That's why she's returning it. Yes. I wouldn't care if he wants to get it appraised or not. I'm returning the jewelry to you. Sure. So he is saying he tells her that he has a problem with his tire on his Corvette. So this is not true. This is his ruse to get her to drive for the night and use her vehicle. And so I think in this moment, he tried to convince her, why don't we just make one more stop on the way home? It would be so convenient. And as we'll see, as we describe the relationship and how it got to this point, she is a very submissive person. And it's maybe just, I'll, I'll just do this. And this is my last, I can just be done with him. If I, I don't want to upset him. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go along with this. That Okay, I get that. Yeah. Unfortunately for Brenda, the friend turned out to be Marianne Shore, and they arrive at her house at 6 p.m. After Brenda enters, Marianne deadbolts the door. Mel tells Brenda, you're here for a sex therapy class. Of course, she immediately protests and tries to get away, but Mel overpowers her, promising, as soon as you do this, you can go home. So now Mel orders Brenda to carefully remove her jewelry that she has on, her clothing piece by piece, as he took pictures. Mel referred to a yellow legal pad in his hand. It was a checklist of all the things he would make Brenda do, all the things he would do to her, down to the specific poses that he wanted to photograph her in. Meticulous, detailed. Once she was completely nude, Mel made Brenda lay face down on Marianne's glass top coffee table, her knees on the floor. He tied her hands to the table legs with rope. And as he sodomized and molested Brenda, Mel instructed Marianne to take more photographs. I take it Marianne's also a submissive. Like he has a type, like you said, like younger than him, a submissive personalities. Marianne's a little bit more feisty than Brenda. She has a history of being rambunctious, getting into trouble with the law. But when it comes to Mel, she does what he says. She's also afraid. After this assault, Mel lets Brenda use the bathroom. Marianne said Brenda was crying, but not speaking anymore. Next, Mel led Brenda to Marianne's bedroom and forced her to perform oral sex. Then, Mel made Brenda lie on her back while he tied her arms to the railings on either side of the queen-size bed. He pulled her legs apart, up, and over her head, also tying them to the bed rails. Mel raped Brenda again, with Mary Ann photographing the assault. So he's not just assaulting her. He's also there. She would surely submit. He would be able to overpower her. He's six foot five. She's five foot three. There's no way he would not be able to rape her. He's adding this element of bondage and torture for sadistic purposes. There's no need to go through all these other painful, humiliating elements. Then Mel untied Brenda, turned her onto her stomach, and beat her with that wooden fraternity paddle he had brought over. Brenda starts screaming, and Marianne says this is when she leaves the room. So after a total of about two hours of torture, Mel had finally checked everything off of his list. He poured chloroform onto a handkerchief and held it against Brenda's face until she passed out and eventually suffocated. Mel assured Marianne that Brenda, quote, didn't suffer. She went to sleep just like you'd be going to sleep. And in court, Mel would tell the Schaefer family that Brenda had, quote, died peacefully. No, she didn't. Yeah, they didn't like that either. (laughs) No, she didn't. She did not die peacefully. 
Next, Mel Brent Benda's body into a tight fetal position, binding her with rope and putting her into four black garbage bags. While he was working, Marianne held Brenda's body to keep her from rolling. Mel taped up the bags, condensing Brenda's body into a package about the size of a suitcase, and set it on Marianne's kitchen counter while he grabbed a flashlight and shovel. Marianne helped Mel carry Brenda's body out to her pre-dug grave, quote, because he told me to and I was afraid. I didn't want to be in there too. Mel buried Brenda with another bag containing her clothing, but kept her purse and jewelry. Mel and Marianne threw away the clothes they had been wearing in a neighbor's trash can. Mel gathered all the materials he brought into a bag and used a steak knife to cut a tire on Brenda's car, pushing a nail into the hole. Because remember, he had Brenda drive her vehicle, not his. Mel drove Brenda's car while Mary Ann followed, stopping at a spot along Interstate 64 about nine miles away. Mel got out of Brenda's car, moved the nail in the tire to let the air out so it looked like she had gotten a flat tire, then got into Mary Ann's car with her. She dropped Mel off at his place around 11.30 p.m. At 12 a.m., after everything he had just done, Mel drove his Corvette to a nearby Skyline Chili restaurant, ate a meal, and watched a football game. He returned home about 1.30 a.m. So somehow, if you hate Mel Ignato now, you will hate him more as we go on. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah. Take a drink, everybody. I've got, I've got a monster. If you've got whatever you've got, take a drink, because here we go. In the early morning hours of Sunday, September 24th, Essie Schaefer is increasingly worried that her daughter Brenda still hadn't returned home. At 3.30 a.m., her worry compels her to pick up the phone and call Mel Ignato, the man Brenda was going to see that night. Mel tells Essie that Brenda left his house around 11.30 p.m. Essie knows Brenda was breaking up with Mel, and now she's worried that she created more problems for her daughter. At 4 a.m., Mel calls Essie back, asking if she's heard from Brenda. Essie lies, telling him that she had forgotten Brenda was at her sister-in-law Sandy's house. Mel seems surprised, hangs up, and calls Sandy, who of course says Brenda isn't there. He does this at like at 4 a.m.? Yes, <laughs> calling people in the wee hours of the morning, panicking. And at 4.17 a.m., Mel calls 911 to report Brenda as a missing person. He does this. He does this. He also calls the harbor master where he docks his boat to ask if they've seen Brenda at his boat. Maybe she went there. He starts calling around searching for Brenda. He calls places before the police even call. At 6.08 a.m., police notice a disabled vehicle along the westbound lane of Interstate 64, about a one-mile walk from Brenda Schaefer's home. So think about this. If she had a flat tire, she would have just walked home, right? Right. It was Brenda's 1984 Buick Regal, right where Mel Ignato had abandoned it almost seven hours earlier. It had that right rear flat tire and evidence of vandalism. Now, again, Brenda was just five foot three. And she adjusted her seat all the way to the front of the car so she could reach the pedals. Now the driver's seat was pushed almost all the way back, as if someone much taller had been sitting in it or driving in it. And Melignato again was six foot five. They never can think of everything. They never can. Friends and family converged at the Schaefer home that Sunday afternoon, offering their support. 
The Schaefers were a traditional German Catholic blue-collar family who had lived in the St. Matthews area of Louisville for over 150 years. Brenda was born to Essie and John Schaefer on April 25, 1952, the second girl in a family of five children. She was the good girl of her friend group, some would say maybe a little overprotected. Brenda married her first serious boyfriend, Charles Pete Van Pelt, getting engaged when they were still seniors in high school. They divorced in 1976 after only four years due to Pete's financial irresponsibility. And given her religious upbringing, it was a difficult decision for Brenda and her family, but she justified moving back in with her parents by agreeing to take care of her mother, who was suffering from lupus. Brenda was a nursing assistant. She was very close with her family, and this was just part of her personality to take care of people. Brenda was still living at home when her best friend introduced her to Mel Ignato, which was a friend of her best friend's boyfriend. Mel, 48 years old, and Brenda, 34, began dating in September 1986, shortly after Brenda's breakup with Jim Rush, who we mentioned earlier. Mel proposed three months into the relationship red flag. (laughs) Brenda didn't accept to her credit, but on Valentine's Day 1987, the pressure mounted and Brenda finally accepted Mel's ring, but she wouldn't set a date for the wedding. Mel's financial stability and the way he doted on Brenda appealed to her, but to outsiders, that seemed to be all she really liked about him. Mel also showed up at the Schaefer's home that Sunday after Brenda disappeared, but his presence only heightened her family's suspicions. Did the family know how dysfunctional and abusive and controlling he was towards Brenda? Had she shared that with them? She sure did. They knew that she had broken up with Mel. They knew that she was going to his home that Saturday night to return her jewelry. Mel was the last one to see her alive. And now he was acting like they had a normal date night before she disappeared. And yes, Trish, Brenda especially confided to Linda Love, her brother Tom's longtime girlfriend, about what she called Mel's exotic sexual demands. Things like badgering her to experiment with anal sex, bondage, group sex... Linda knew that Mel constantly told Brenda to relax, and he would try to loosen her up with drugs, saying, I can get this pill in you somehow if I want to. Mel would threaten her, and in one incident, Brenda even woke up to Mel covering her mouth with a chloroform-soaked cloth. Where does one get chloroform? Where does one get it? He was a traveling salesman. He did not deal in chemicals. So I don't know where Mel ever got his chloroform. I guess you can get but... anything off the internet. But... <laughs> I, well, in the 80s, I well, don't know. yeah, no, not in the 80s. Where'd he get his chloroform? That is an unanswered question. Now here at the Schaefer house, Mel was weeping dramatically, insisting Brenda had already died. He would say things like, I, j- I just know it. I'm never going to see her again. With their suspicions mounting towards certainty of Mel's guilt, Tom, her brother, and his girlfriend, Linda, who knows all about this sexual violent history, snuck out of this family gathering and they go report Mel to the police. When police interview Mel at his home the next day, he refers to prepared notes before he responds to their questions. Like he literally has notes written. Literally has no on that same yellow legal pad. This is only one of several alarm bells police have. Mel gave the impression that he and Brenda were still a loving couple, 
The police know that's not true. He told police that Brenda drove them to Gold Star Chili around 4 p.m., but then he listed almost a dozen places he claims that they went that night. Stores where they didn't make a purchase, outdoor places where they stayed in the car due to rain. So in other words, no one could possibly corroborate that they were at any of these locations. And then says that they returned around 1130. Mel suggested that they look at Jim Rush instead. Brenda's most recent ex with substance abuse problems, who he thinks might have killed her in a fit of jealousy. Or perhaps Pete Van Pelt, Brenda's first husband, who Brenda told Mel and only Mel had been stalking her. This is completely made up. Mel Ignato quickly, obviously, became investigators' number one suspect, and they feared Brenda Schaefer was already dead. And as they continued to interview Brenda's inner circle, ruling out other suspects like Jim and Pete, that hunch only grew stronger. Brenda had worked as a nursing assistant to Dr. William Spaulding for 12 years, and Dr. Spaulding was convinced, like everyone else, that Mel had killed Brenda as soon as he heard about her disappearance. He and Brenda's colleagues witnessed Mel's controlling, manipulative behavior firsthand. Dr. Spaulding even told police that he was considering scaring Mel into confessing, writing a letter to threaten him. He wouldn't actually hurt Mel, he promised, just frighten him enough to talk. The police were like, thanks, William, we are Appreciate the help, but let us do our jobs, please. You'll go to jail. Brenda's closest friends said she avoided conflict by being submissive, and Mel, a relentless and, again, manipulative salesman, knew exactly how to wear her down. Whenever Brenda tried to end the relationship or create boundaries, Mel would guilt trip or threaten her in response. Brenda was also extremely self-critical and insecure about her appearance, which only made her more vulnerable to a man like Mel. And when I say I don't want to go too much into this because Brenda's a wonderful woman, we shouldn't focus on what she felt were her flaws. But when I say that, what I mean is she would get regular appointments to remove hair from her fingers with electrolysis. She had different surgeries. It was not normal insecurities about your appearance. So almost like a body dysmorphic issue. Yes, I would think so. Yeah, very unfortunate. Weeks after her disappearance, Brenda's mother, Essie, is still sleeping on the living room couch in case Brenda walks in the front door. Police believe Mel knows more than he's sharing, and Brenda's brother, Tom, agrees to meet with Mel while wearing a wire. It turns into three meetings over the course of five weeks, but it doesn't help. Mel mostly vents to Tom about how much he is suffering and why the police are wasting their time investigating him. At the last meeting they have, Mel presents Tom with a list of 42 items. He recorded all of Brenda's assets and their appraised values. Trish is looking disgusted. (laughs) I'm just, why? Why? Well, Mel would later say that he was trying to assist the family in settling Brenda's estate. He was just trying to be a nice guy, Trish. She's missing at this point. (laughs) For just a few weeks. And how do you know what all her assets are? Is he breaking into her home? No, he would constantly grill her and force her to account for everything. That was part of the financial control was a component of the relationship. And of course, for Tom, this was really strange, suspicious, and very upsetting. Mel even asked him that if they're ever found, he would like the gifts he gave to Brenda return to him. The jewelry that he took off her body before he killed her. He's asking her brother to return to him if it's ever found. So after this, Tom told police he couldn't go through with the meetings anymore. (laughs) Blame him. Oh, my gosh. Imagine if Tom knew at that moment for sure. 
just imagine. Police dig deeper into Malignato's background looking for leads. Now, he was born March 26, 1938 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm sorry. Why is there always a connection to Pennsylvania? (laughs) We're really nice people. We are, except for Mel. He's Louisville's most hated man, not Pennsylvania's, okay? He was the second of three children born to David and Virginia Ignato. The family moved a lot and Mel's teenage years were interrupted by his father's bankruptcy filings. Mel's schoolmates described him as shy, nerdy, and a follower. Mel attended the University of Louisville for a time, but he never declared a major. He bragged to the few friends he had that he paid his way through college by selling pornography, but got out when his partner was shot. In reality, Mel left college when he met Sharon Kippen, and they married in 1960. The couple would have three children, Donna, Patty, and Michael, and lived together for 13 years. Mel was, not surprisingly, sexually, emotionally, and psychologically abusive to Sharon almost constantly. He belittled Sharon in front of others, kept her out of important decisions, and tightly restricted her spending. When she argued with Mel, got home late, or requested extra money for necessities, Mel punished her by forcing her to submit to anal sex. He raped her. That's how he doled out violence. When their divorce was finalized in 1973, it was clear that Sharon was willing to do absolutely anything to be free of Mel. In the divorce settlement, Mel got their home, car, and full custody of all three children. Now at 35 and recently divorced, Mel landed a high-paying job as a traveling salesman, and that's where he meets 23-year-old secretary named Mary Ann Shore. Now, Mary Ann was born in 1950 to a blue-collar family, and like Brenda Schaefer, she was also raised Catholic. So I don't know if there's any more to this Catholic thing, but Mel had a type. As an adult, Marianne bounced from job to job and was perpetually broke. Her coworkers described her as unreliable and manipulative, someone who always cut corners and stole from her jobs. Within a year, Mel and Marianne started dating. Mel told his friends that he was using Marianne, who he nicknamed Sammy Sunshine, for sex. Marianne became Mel's live-in babysitter when he went away on business trips. In 1984, Marianne ended the relationship, saying she finally realized that Mel would never marry her. She admitted to stalking Mel after their breakup, though, telling friends that their sexual relationship never ended. Police are sure Marianne knows something about Brenda's death and keep the pressure on her for weeks. In February 1989, Marianne agrees to a polygraph test, insisting that she's innocent, and she fails it miserably. In March of 1989, Mel Ignato receives a letter threatening to kill him if he doesn't confess to Brenda Schaefer's murder. Police quickly uncover that the letter sender is Brenda's boss, Dr. Spaulding, and Mel files charges. Oh, Dr. Spaulding. (laughs) God love you. He just wanted justice, but you can't threaten people. Everyone is so sympathetic, even the police, Brenda's family. They're like, just let him go. He's right. (laughs) Ignato versus Spalding goes to trial in August 1989, and Dr. Spalding defends himself by illustrating why Mel is the only logical suspect. Mel testifies, insisting that he and Brenda had a good relationship and denying killing her or having anything to do with her disappearance. Dr. Spalding is found guilty of making terroristic threats, but he's only find $300. Importantly, the public is sympathetic and now more convinced of Mel's guilt than ever. 
Noticing how confident Mel is on the stand, investigators offer him an opportunity to testify in front of a grand jury. A little bit of legal advice to our listeners, never offer to testify in front of the grand jury if you're suspected of a crime. He stupidly sees it as a chance to control the narrative, clear his name, and finally get the police off his back. On October 16, 1989, against his attorney's advice, Mel testified to a federal grand jury for four hours. Now to his credit, and we can't give him much, he never cracked, but he did admit to restarting his relationship with Mary Ann Shore after Brenda's disappearance. So investigators didn't know that. And that was important in them applying more pressure on Mary Ann later. And it also allowed them to question Mary Ann in front of the grand jury as well. Mel also admitted to using chloroform on himself when he, quote, got stuffed up with allergies. Now, I don't know about you, Trish. I have never used chloroform when I get allergies. I wouldn't see how that would clear up your allergies. It wouldn't. It would just knock you out. (laughs) He said Brenda did it, too, for the same reason. And when the prosecutor asked if he ever put it on Brenda's face, you know, not her applying it to herself, but Mel applying it to her, he said "Uh, occasionally when they were feeling playful. I don't see how chloroform makes you feel playful. You don't play sexual games with chloroform. Marianne next testified before that same grand jury on January 3rd, 1990. When asked if she had ever met Brenda Schaefer, Marianne replied only once. Later, when asked what Brenda looked like, Marianne replied with a question. Which time? The attorney paused and then responded, the last time you saw her. Now Marianne froze, realized her mistake, and literally ran out of the courtroom. She ran out, fled the courtroom. So the judge didn't dismiss her. (sighs) No, she just left. She did. She composed herself. She went to her attorney and she collected herself and she returned and finished questioning. She got it together. But yeah, she she fled. (laughs) So yeah, the police, they know. They know Marianne is is their person that they have to focus in on. After her experience with the grand jury, Marianne agrees, finally, to tell police where Brenda's body is, but only if they will cut her a deal. She tells them everything, but also tells them, I'm afraid of Mel. She describes how Mel would use bondage and anal sex to, quote, straighten me up. If I did something like this, meaning the bondage and sex, then we would stay together. Mel also beat Marianne with his wooden fraternity paddle when she was tied to the bed, just like he did to Brenda. Investigators know that Marianne has a motive to kill Brenda and they need more evidence. Marianne agrees to having a wired conversation with Mel and leading police to Brenda's burial site. In exchange, Marianne would only be charged with evidence tampering and face a maximum five years in prison. Sometimes it takes the little devil to get to the big devil, the district attorney would later say. Well... And Mel's the bigger devil. Not that she didn't play a part in it. He really is. Importantly, they would face criticism for this, though, because at this point in time, they don't really know Marianne's full, how should I say, kind of like Carla Homolka. They don't understand her full role in it. She could be covering up part of it. But clearly, even so, no matter what she did, Mel is who they want. Marianne has a 13-minute recorded conversation with Mel, but the quality is poor, and the words Brenda, body, or anything else incriminating are never spoken. Mel does say at one point, quote, that place we dug is not shallow, but his defense would successfully argue that he might have said got, not dug, and they also argue that it could have been about a safe. 
not a body. So it didn't really hold up in court at all. That night, regardless, police begin digging for Brenda's body at the spot Marianne showed them. As the hours dragged on into the following day, January 10, 1990, police, out of fear that Mel might run away, they arrest Mel Ignato, confident that they are going to uncover a body. He's charged with murder, sodomy, sexual abuse, unlawful imprisonment, obstruction of justice, perjury, and given a $500,000 bond. At Mel's home, police find the wooden fraternity paddle, a 35-millimeter camera, and a collection of newspaper articles about Brenda's case. Did they find the photo? They did not find the photos. When Brenda's body was finally unearthed, there was no sign of her jewelry, purse, or the photos Marianne said were taken during the assault. But Brenda's body was packaged exactly how Marianne said it would be. The condition of her body after 16 months in cool, soggy ground, however, prevented the collection of any physical evidence or a cause of death determination. On January 23rd, police completed another even more exhaustive search of Mel's home and personal property. Now we're talking, they're taking light fixtures out of the walls. They are ripping his place apart, top to bottom. And they are specifically seeking the photos or undeveloped film because, I mean, you can't just take it to to Walmart or CVS and have photos like that developed. You shouldn't. (laughs) But once again, they leave empty handed. They don't find any other evidence in this second search. It would be almost two years before Mel Ignato finally went to trial for Brenda Schaefer's murder. Two years. In that time, both of Brenda's parents and Mel's mother passed away. Judge Martin Johnstone presided over countless pretrial motions and legal bickering between prosecutor Ernie Jasmine and defense attorney Charlie Ricketts. The trial finally begins on December 3rd, 1991 in Kenton County where it had been moved to avoid juror bias from extensive media coverage in Louisville. Now, there was no physical evidence implicating Mel in Brenda's murder, but there was no physical evidence exonerating him either. His attorney made a convincing argument of investigators having tunnel vision, which is true. They arrested Mel before they found the body. They only tested evidence against Mel and not other suspects. Further helping Mel's defense was the fact that Judge Johnstone didn't allow much of the sexual violence that Brenda reported to her friends and family into evidence. He said it was hearsay and most of it didn't make it to trial. So the stories about him applying chloroform to her face when they were still in a relationship together, things like that, that didn't make it into trial at all. How is it hearsay if she told someone? It's not like they're overhearing, like her mom told me that Brenda told her. This is Brenda telling them directly. It could never be, the way that I understand it is Brenda could not be cross-examined. The things that she said could never be cross-examined. But that's in most murder trials. You have witnesses on the stand, they'll say, Mm -hmm. yes, my conversation with her on this day She told me this. We see that in trials all the time. We do. So the inclusion of it is completely subjective and up to the judge, whether it has evidentiary value or not. Unfortunately, in this case, in in the early 90s, the prosecution's key witness was Marianne Shore. She had a tough, detached, really disrespectful demeanor that made it seem like she couldn't care less about the horrible things that happened to Brenda. People said she did things like giggling you know, on the stand. And I don't know if she had a a nervous laugh. They just expected more emotion from her. And, you know, we're talking about these horrible things that Mel did to Brenda. And she's speaking of it like she's 
reading the phone book. Like it could, it has no emotional impact from her. Many of Mel's defense witnesses characterized her as jealous and obsessive, the kind of person who was strong enough to kill somebody and twisted enough to do it over love and jealousy. The defense's four-hour-long closing argument walked through a list of 51 reasonable doubts, and they named Marianne as Brenda's murderer. Brenda was buried behind Marianne's property, and Marianne led police to her body. And it makes me wonder if that wasn't Mel's plan from the beginning, right? To have everything happen at Marianne's house in case she ever spilled the beans. Now, it was less than a week before the Christmas holiday when this trial was taking place, and defense attorney Ricketts told the jury... Don't be sitting in the church at midnight on Christmas Eve, wondering if you've done the wrong thing, failed to be responsible. Prosecuting attorney Jasmine took just one hour for his closing argument, stating plainly that the prosecution presented the only evidence in the case and the defense hadn't refuted it. So the jury deliberates for just two hours on December 21st. They're eager to get home to their families and holiday activities. There are rumors of racism and bullying in the deliberation room. Later, nine of the 12 jurors would say that they thought Mel was guilty, but didn't feel the prosecution proved their case. The jury ultimately voted to acquit Mel on all charges. And he was released from prison on December 23rd, 1991. Judge Johnstone actually sent a letter of apology to the Schaefer family after that decision came down. Authorities were not satisfied. They were humiliated. They were heartbroken. And they began the process of trying to figure out what they could charge Mel with. And they decided that they could bring him up on federal perjury charges for lying to the grand jury. And that was the least that they could do at this point. Mel, he began the process of selling his house, his Corvette, his boat, and all his other assets to pay for his mounting legal fees. So even though he was free, he was stressed. Yeah. Marianne was sentenced to five years, the maximum for her evidence tampering charge. She made a public apology and waived her first parole hearing, but she was released within three years on good behavior. Now, she died in 2004 of health problems at the age of 54. Well, the stress. What a lifestyle. So she, she is the most complicated. We'll talk about it more at the end, but she is one of the most complicated figures I have ever come across in a true crime case. So now we get to almost a full year later. October 1, 1992. Remember, Mel sells his house to pay his legal fees, and the new owners of his home are in the process of replacing carpet. They find a 4 by 10 inch heating duct hidden under the old carpet, kind of against a wall by a door in the corner of a room where you wouldn't really step on it. Inside the hole, they find a plastic bag containing jewelry and three canisters of undeveloped film. Frickin' Yahtzee. Over 135 millimeter photographs catalog Brenda Schaefer's torture exactly as Marianne Shore described it. The jewelry was Brenda's. So Mel is immediately arrested. (laughs) For what? For what? I don't know. But they are investigating him on those perjury charges. And when he's arrested and presented with this evidence, he agrees to plead guilty to all three of those federal perjury charges and publicly admit to the murder and serve a minimum of eight years. Now, double jeopardy laws in the United States prevented Mel from being charged again with what he did to Brenda and serving time for it. So double jeopardy protects new, if it had been new facts of the case, he could be charged with new charges based on those new facts, but it was new evidence that proved the old facts of the case. And they charged him with murder one? 
in the first trial. Ooh, I don't know. I don't know which count of murder, but the the rape, the sodomy, all of that. That I could see. But if you charge him with murder one, if you charge him with all three, like murder one, two, you know, manslaughter Mm -hmm. or whatever, and he's acquitted on all of them, I could see. But if you only charge him with murder one, why not get him on involuntary manslaughter or murder two? Whatever the laws were, they absolutely couldn't do it. And this is the the legal experts on this all agree that this is definitely a miscarriage of justice. But they they kind of put it back on the prosecution that this is this is why we wait to go to trial until we're certain of someone's guilt that we can that we can try it. And that one fluke like this should not mean that we reexamine double jeopardy as a, as a legal constitute. So at any rate, Mel apologized to the Schaefer family, asking for forgiveness and blaming the crime on his temporary separation from God. And once again, he said she died peacefully. Mm-hmm. Judge Martin Johnstone, he was so torn up about this that he left trial work. He called it a draining, heart-wrenching experience and said that the system was a colossal failure. The man got away with murder and there was nothing anybody could do about it. Mel's only son and youngest child, Michael, he supported Mel throughout his trial. He, Mel lived with him. He supported him fully, but he felt betrayed and he believes Brenda's family was cheated and that his father should have received the death penalty. Now, despite making a plea agreement, Mel still filed a motion to reduce his sentence. Get this. He said he saved the trouble and expense of preparing for a trial by pleading guilty. (laughs) That motion was denied and Mel was scheduled for release on October 31st, 1997. But on October 23rd, 1997, so eight days before, they charged Mel with first degree perjury related to his testimony in Dr. William Spaulding's trial. So a week before before he thought he was going to get out, they gave him more perjury because of the trial that he insisted happened because of that letter Dr. Spaulding sent. So in that jury case, Mel had testified that he didn't kill Brenda, which obviously he did. He unsuccessfully appealed this too, and he was sent back to prison. So he did get more time for his crimes, even though it wasn't specifically for the murder. He was released, though, on December 1st, 2006. So he served nine more years. Yes, he did. You know what? I take it back, Dr. Spaulding. Thank (laughs) you for sending that letter, Dr. (laughs) Spaulding. Dr. Spaulding's kind of the hero here. On September 1, 2008, Mel was found dead in the apartment where he lived alone. That's almost 20 years to the day of when he murdered Brenda. He had fallen when his walker crumbled crashing into, of all things, a glass coffee table and cutting an artery. A blood trail indicated that Mel moved around his apartment before he finally decided to lean against a wall and bleed to death. He was 70 years old. He never called for help. Mel's son Michael thinks his father welcomed his death, saying he will go down as one of the most hated men in Louisville. So listen, guys, there's in the resources section of this week's write up, there's a book that I read online called Double Jeopardy by Bob Hill. He was a reporter in the Louisville area when this case was happening. That's where I got a lot of my information from. There's also a lot of really good articles about the community and the family's reaction to this case as it evolved over time. And there's some wonderful specials. I want to 
point out especially the episode of Evil Lives Here on ID. If you've not seen it, it is completely from the perspective of Mel's son, Michael, and what he saw in Mel and Mary Ann's relationship. He believes very much that Mary, you know, he accepts that Mel came up with this idea. He accepts that Mel executed, that Mel is responsible, but he doesn't think his father would have done it without Mary Ann's influence and pressure. And I will say to Marianne's credit, if she hadn't come forward, we wouldn't know where Brenda's body is. We wouldn't know what happened. Mel might have never sold that house. We might have never found the photographs. The woods behind her property is still undeveloped. It's very likely we would never know what happened to Brenda without Marianne coming forward. And she didn't get anything for it, really. She got, she did serve time. She died young, but she wasn't heralded in a positive way. Well, but she was the lesser devil. She was still a devil. She's a bad person. But yeah, it's 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 really interesting because it's it's not like Carla Homolka. I guess in my mind, I'm holding her against Carla. She makes the deal and then you find out, oh no, she lied and she was way more involved. In this case, it's, oh my God, no, she told the truth the whole entire time. True. Did she when she told the police? Because it doesn't sound like she said, yeah, I took the photos. Yeah, I was there when he was beating her with the paddle. Yeah, I heard her crying in the bathroom. Oh, I was there taking the photos when she had to take off her jewelry, when she laid her over the glass coffee table. Like, mm-hmm. I-, I suspect she downplayed that a bit. Yes, yes, after she died, how he had bundled up her body and where they had buried her. Yes, I think she admitted all that. And yes, you're right. She did finally after she backed herself into a corner during the grand jury. Correct. Had she never backed herself in that corner. Correct. Would she have? Well, right, because at that point, she was still trying to win Mel's affections. Correct. There is so much more to this story, guys. Mel continues to date other women while he is going through this trial process. He tries to ingratiate himself with this born-again Christian community. They have a lot to say. There is so much more to this. But, you know, Mel doesn't deserve multiple episodes. But you can check out the show notes and the resources if you're curious or interested in this case. I will say I think it's karma, Mm -hmm. how they both died, her very young and not getting what she wants in the end. I'm talking about Marianne. That's right. And him dying alone. Mm-hmm. And and being the most hated man in Louisville and just goes to show you again how our justice system, though not perfect, because it's not in this case, I think highlights it in, in that way. Everyone knew he had something to do with it. And for whatever reason, he was able to get away with it and was found not guilty. So you can't try him again for those things. But they did get him on perjury and he did serve some time in, in the federal prison system. The timing of it, it really seems like they took pleasure too, like in screwing him over, like teasing him with the release date. Yeah. Here's your release date. Oh, (laughs) snap. You're getting another nine years. The red flags here for sure, though, are, listen, if your friend's going through a breakup, no more meetups. You go with them. You go with your friend. You don't go alone. Don't drag it into other places. Criminal discourse life tip. Oh, my word. Don't go alone. And if somebody wants you to return something, take two, three people with you. Mm -hmm. Do it in a public place. Mail it. Yeah. And keep it spicy in the bedroom, but not chloroform spicy. That's not okay. That's not normal. This whole relationship was, I mean, he was twisted from the beginning. Guys, this was intense. How are we going to end this one, Trish? If you are in a relationship that's toxic, abusive, There are places you can go for help. Brenda, she told her family. She shared what was going on. She 
work to get her way out of that very toxic relationship. I'm not an expert in domestic violence, but they do say the process of getting out is is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's places that can help you. Don't be afraid to reach out. Well, and reported to police. I don't know that I mentioned it in here too, but that was one of the things the defense attorney used against Brenda's witnesses is if she was afraid for her life, if you all knew she was afraid for her life, why did nobody report this to police? And that is not screw the defense attorney for saying that because he clearly doesn't understand these situations. But at the same time, those are the kind of things that can help you if it ever escalates to a situation like this. To have that paper trail. Yes. And if they had that paper trail, perhaps the judge would have allowed more of that hearsay testimony into evidence about the relationship history. And putting it in perspective, this was the early 90s. Oh, good Lord. Yes. Yes. Some things have thankfully changed, but (laughs) not enough. This is the burning bed era. This was still a time in some states where if the police didn't witness your husband hitting you, he didn't hit you. I mean, this was terrible. So there are organizations out there willing to help. Don't stay in a situation where you're unsafe, but also make sure you take precautions because it is a dangerous situation. So like we said, make sure you check out the show notes if you're interested in in finding more out about this. And we want to take a moment to thank Brittany for this case suggestion. It was interesting case, if not an emotionally disturbing case, but we appreciate it. So thank you, Brittany. So as always, guys, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. Don't be Marianne and wait till your back's in a corner to say something. You know what? To Dr. Spaulding who at least said his piece and did something that later on got him nine years. So thank you, Dr. Spaulding. At least you tried. At least he tried. And you could clearly tell he felt for what happened to her and her family and felt it was a miscarriage justice. And to the people that bought the home and discovered and immediately called the police, you know, whether they knew whose home it was and the connection to this case, you know, turning it over to authorities, he could be charged with it, but at least there was some closure there. So let's remember, if this case shows us anything, we need to look out for one another. We need to be each other's support system. But we also need to be kind to one another. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.